please open your Bibles, your eyes, your hearts. Philippians chapter 1. Let's read from verse 27 until verse 4 of chapter 2. So please stand if you can. Here is the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaging the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now here that I still have. Therefore, if there is any, any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any fellowship from the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of one spirit and one mind. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Please be seated. The letter of Philippians has caused us to stop and think about church unity. As we are walking through the letter of Philippians, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has caused us to stop now and think about the importance of church unity. We saw the gravity of church unity, how precious it is. Jesus died not to make you an individual happy person but to make his people one that's what we saw he died to make his people one to bring unity to his people we saw how serious church unity is last lord's day we look at the grounds of our unity what is the foundation of church unity and we saw in verse one that's the work of the trinity the triunity of God, the three persons, this beautiful unity that God had and the work of salvation. But then the question becomes, what does a church that is striving to maintain the unity bought by the blood of Christ look like? If somebody came to you and asked you, all right, I can see that unity is important. I can see that unity is the work of the triune God. But tell me, what does unity look like in the church? How would you answer that? For some people, a united church is a church in which every single member agrees with one another in every single theological point. Others believe that a united church is a church where every member is nice to each other, whatever nice means. A united church is a church where every members agree with each other in all political issues. Causes of war, taxation. For others, a united church is a church that has never any conflict or struggle among the members. Start to sound more like a cult, right? <laughs> a united church is a church where all the members, they fully agree with each other about how parents must raise their children. Oh, a united church is a church where all the members, they have the same library at home. They all read the same books. That does smell like a cult. 
Or they all like the same hobbies. Oh, we are so united. All the men in this church love hunting. All the men love golfing. All the women love knitting. What a unit in the body. Or for others, we are all united because we all like and sing the same hymns. We all have the same family traditions. Oh, they all agree with the church's liturgy. Or for others, a united church is a church in which all have the same cultural or ethnic background. And that has become more and more popular. So a united church is a church... Oh, they're all Japanese in that church. Of course they are united. Oh, that church is made up of all Brazilian people. Of course they are united. Oh, this church is a church of all of black people. Of course they are united. Is that the ground? Is that what unity looks like? Brothers and sisters, all these things have nothing to do with true church unity according to the scriptures. Spurgeon said, As to uniformity of dress, liturgical verbiage, or form of worship, I find nothing of it in the scriptures. He goes on to say, Men may pray acceptably standing, sitting, kneeling, or lying with their faces upon the earth. They may meet to worship Jesus by the riverside, in the temple porch, in a prison, or in a private house. Here's what sin does. Sin is always causing us to major in the minors and minor in the majors. That's what sin does. So sin is always causing us to major in the thing that the Lord never commanded us. Never required from us. That's what sin always does. So when it comes to church unity, we think about church unity in sinful ways, and we are always thinking that what is going to unite us are the things that actually God has not requested from us. Why are we ignoring what He actually requires from us? So I'd like to, st to start this sermon by giving you the definition of church unity. That's my definition. In light of studying the scriptures, uh, hearing from other godly preachers. So in light of the truth that there is one triune God, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, and one gospel. Church unity is that state in which a local church, by the power of the gospel has attained as a gift of the Trinity. So first of all, unity is a gift. That's very important to begin there. We don't create unity. We maintain unity. Christ created the unity in the church. So it's a state in which a local church, by the power of the gospel, has attained as a gift of the Trinity and maintains as its prevailing climate prevailing climate is striving to keep this climate a fundamental oneness and harmony of conviction and understanding of the core doctrines of the gospel a unity of affection purpose and activity while at the same time expressing diversity in areas that do not disturb the unity but rather promote it And my plan here this morning is to walk through Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, and show you how I came up with this definition of church unity. So, as you come to Philippians, we know that Paul is developing, starting chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life, your conduct of life, be worthy, be in accordance with the gospel. And Paul is going to say that a life that's matching the gospel is a life in unity. 
The gospel is the work of the Trinity unifying His people in Christ Jesus. Therefore, for a church to be woke in a manner worthy of the gospel, there must be unity. Can you imagine a church without unity and proclaiming the gospel? That's the work of the Trinity uniting all things in Christ. That makes no sense. So that's why Paul is saying, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And then he goes on to tell us how in living in unity. But then he first deals with the church maintaining and preserving the unity in the midst of external opposition. So that's verses 27 through 30. You have opponents. You have people persecuting the church. And when the persecution comes, instead of running away and protecting just your family and just defending yourself, no, let that persecution unite you. Hold you guys together. But then he moves on to talk about preserving the unity of the church in the midst of opposition from within the church. That's what he's dealing now. And the opposition coming from within is nothing less than our own sins. It's not the other person, but it's actually our hearts. So that's what Paul is dealing here. And we saw, we saw it's a beautiful structure, verses 1 through 4. Actually, this whole section here, it's beautiful how Paul structures. Uh, there is rhyme, symmetry. It's beautiful how he has symmetry. You have three strophes, and each strophe has four lines. And some of the lines begin with the same words, or you have uh, play with sounds. So here's how we are going to be moving this morning. We are going to review the grounds of church unity, verse 1, and then you're going to look at the nature of church unity, what church unity actually looks like. And you're going to see the church unity must have unity of conviction and unity of affection. Otherwise, there is no church unity. Unity of conviction and unity of affection. So we saw, and I'll, I'll be quick here just to review that, we saw in verse 1 that's the grounds for church unity. And the grounds of church unity is the work of the Trinity. So verse 1, look in your Bibles. Verse 1, so if there is any comfort in Christ. And remember, Paul is not doubting that. Paul is not questioning if there is. Paul knows that there is. We could translate as since there is comfort in Christ. The consolation from the love of the Father. The communion of the Spirit, affection and compassion. Since all these things Christ has given to the church, since all those who are in Christ have all these blessings of the Trinity, that's the foundation for church unity. Now Paul can come with his request. He laid the foundation, a very strong foundation. That's the work of the Trinity. And now he's going to build his request. And remember, we, we need a strong foundation for church unity. Because the storms will come. And the shingles will be blown away. The windows will be torn apart. But as long as we have a strong foundation there, we can rebuild again. And we saw the... It's beautiful how Paul orchestrated his, his request. Look at that. Complete my joy in light of all these blessings that you have. Now complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord of one mind. So now Paul, after he gave the, all that Christ has done for the church, now he brings the imperative. Children, what is an imperative? It's a request. It's a command. If your dad says, don't cross the street, that's an imperative. It's a command. Don't do that. But if he asks you, would you like ice cream after lunch? That's not an imperative. It almost is, right? <laughs> it's a question. It's a request. <laughs> 
And that's what Paul always does, and that's what the Bible always does. Once you have the foundation, what Christ has done for us, the indicatives, what Christ accomplished on our behalf, now there is the imperative. Now you must do something in light of all that Christ has done for you. And that's what Paul is doing here. So he says, complete my joy. And that's the only verb in the imperative here, is the command to complete his joy. Paul's main request and appeal is that the Philippians will fill his cup of joy to the brim. That's the picture here. You remember last Lord's Day, I gave you the example of the milkshake. Remember? And there is a little bit left in the cup, and you say, just, just bring it on. Top it off. And that's what Paul is saying. Because he already told them that he has joy. Every time I pray for you, I pray with joy. There is joy in my heart. Paul said that he's rejoicing. But now he says that his joy is not complete. Still missing something. And that's important for us because a lot of times we think about joy as something that doesn't change. Right? We learn that as joy as something that cannot change. Cannot increase or diminish. But we can see here from Paul that sometimes joy actually can vary. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is a happiness is a whole other game. But joy, just like hope, faith, righteousness. The fruits of the Spirit. Even though we have that within us, we still must grow and increase and advance in these things. Amen? So, so here's important, okay? Christians, you never, you can never be without joy. You can never be without, without righteousness, without hope. If you, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and the Holy Spirit is joy, righteousness, hope. So in one sense, a Christian can never lose his joy. Otherwise, he lost the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, he lost his salvation. If you are in Christ, but our degree can vary. And we are called to strive to grow. Grow in holiness, grow in righteousness, grow in joy, grow in hope, grow in faith. So I hope that helps. So Paul says, complete my joy. Wait a second, Paul. Paul, Paul, Paul. What are you doing? Now you're finding joy on something else besides Christ? You're trying to find your joy in people? Or joy, or Paul, how selfish are you to now tell the church, those people, to make your joy complete? How about their joy? Is Paul sinning? What's going on here? See, somebody can come to you and ask you, hey, wait a second, you, you told me that we need to find our joy in Christ alone. And here's the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, trying to find joy in people. How would you answer that? Or here's Paul telling them to do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition. Put others above yourself. And now he's telling them to complete his joy. How selfish is that? You see, we miss completely the point of union with Christ when you start thinking like that. When you start to think about Paul or any Christian detached, away from Christ, away from the body of Christ, away from the church, you are missing the whole point. Because of our union with Christ. Because the church is the body of Christ. Therefore, it's inseparable. Our joy in Christ and our joy in, 
in God's people, in Christ's people. One scholar says, We would be misreading Paul, however, if we took him to be saying hypocritically, Oh, you need to be selfless and sacrificial, but I do not. Forego your happiness so that I can be happy. No, in fact, he's hinting, he's hinting that his own experience and example show that there is a joy that's richer, deeper, and sweeter than the satisfaction of self-centered desire. Whether that desire is for comfort, pleasure, reputation, or achievement. Christ's grace has turned Paul's heart inside out so that his joy is now bound up in seeing his Christian friends grow more like Jesus. Paul's joy in Christ is inseparable from seeing the people for whom Christ died united. Can you imagine? How, how, how could that be selfish? A person to say, complete my joy by you being united. And you see that Paul is actually giving motivations to the church in Philippi. And the motivation is, make your leader in Christ joyful. And sometimes it's easy for us to say, we don't need motivation. Just the glory of God. The glory of God must be our motivation. Amen. But that glory is motivated by different means. Jesus had different motivations to accomplish His work. For the joy set before Him. He died in order to purify His church. So He had different motivations to accomplish His work. If Jesus, the Holy One, had motivations, who do we think we are that we don't need different motivations to accomplish the Father's will? In Hebrews 13, See if I have here. I don't know if I here, yes, Hebrews thirteen, verse seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's what I always ask people when they say that they are Christians but they don't belong to a church. That's one of the first things I ask them. And because they say I, I don't need a church. I'm a Christian, I don't need a church. I say, so who are your leaders? Because Jesus clearly commands you to obey your leaders in the local church. Ah, I don't need leaders. Oh, wow. You're wiser than Christ. So he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And look at the, the motivation. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for they will be of no advantage to you. So, I join, we the elders of this church, we join our voices with Paul and say, make our joy complete. Make our joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, one spirit, one mind. Honestly, our joy as elders, as those overseeing this church, our joy does not overflow when you guys buy a new car and you guys purchase a bigger house, when you guys get a fat check in the mail. Our joy overflow when we look at the church and we see all these people from different backgrounds, different characters, different traits, different likes and dislikes, and yet united. So that's what Paul is doing here. That's the heart of a pastor. And I would like to turn and ask you, Is your joy made full by the unity of the church? Is your joy as a Christian, one in Christ, made full because of the unity of your local church?
When was the last time that you prayed for unity in your local church? When was the last time you look at somebody else and said, My joy is so full in seeing this church united. When you see members of the church not getting along, do you say to them, Please make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love. So may, may our desire, prayer, and pursuit be the same as Jesus and Paul's to see the church united in Christ. So here, Paul, now he's going to develop that. And I think I have here, yes. He's going to develop what he means by completing his joy, making his joy full. And he shows that his joy will be made full when they are united when they have unity of conviction and unity of affection complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love one soul one mind two things important to notice here two observations first paul says nothing about external things as the source of unity that's amazing paul doesn't say anything Related to the external as a way of making his joy complete by being united. Paul doesn't talk about church building, church traditions, church liturgy, external traditions, political parties, favorite hymns. His focus is on mind and heart. Do you know why? Paul knows that the source of division the source of disunity, it's always where? Within. Remember James chapter 4? Where do the fights and quarrels come from? Oh, from my wife. Oh, from that member. And James says, actually, no. That comes from within you. And that's what Paul is doing here. He focuses in the inner man. This unity always begins inside our hearts. And second, Paul's structures here is beautiful how he structured because he, he makes like a, a hamburger. And you have the mind. And you have the affections. You have convictions and you have affections. Meaning, you cannot separate one from the other. This is not simply a call for doctrinal agreement. But doctrinal agreement grounded in love. That's similar to what he did in chapter 1 verse 9. And this I pray for you Philippians. That your love. What? May abound. How? Knowledge. And what else? Discernment. Conviction and affection. Conviction and affection must always go hand in hand. So Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's a very fascinating word Paul keeps repeating here in Philippians. For now, we saw that word in, in, in verse 7 of chapter, chapter 1, when Paul says, and it's right, it's right for me. The ESV translate, translates, it's right for me to feel this way. No, 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 no. Do you remember what I said? No, this word has to do with conviction. Paul is saying, it's right for me to believe that God will bring to accomplishment His work in you. It's right for me to be convicted of this. To have this mind. So the word, I think I have here. Yeah, the Greek word phronel. Means to develop an attitude based on careful thought. When a scholar says, a common conviction and disposition leading to harmony. The main idea behind this word is a careful thinking. Thinking about things. Conviction. And if Paul used this word in, in other contexts, and it's always fascinating to see how he used it in relation to church unity. So Romans 12, 16 the ESV says, live in harmony with one another. I prefer the NASB says, be of the same mind. And that's the, the same Greek word here. 
have the same convictions about what truly matters. Romans 15, verses 5 through 7, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. And then he says here, agree with one another. Have the same convictions of what truly matters. And live in harmony. Every time Paul used this word in, in, in the context of church unity, it's always related to calling people to have those convictions that unite them in the gospel. I think it's important for us to, to think about this word and us just thinking about one element of this local church and other local churches you go to and you see that we have a statement of faith. Or a confession of faith in our church. So many churches have that. Why do we have a statement of faith? That's what unites us in what is the most essential when it comes to the gospel. Our convictions about the gospel. Unity is not achieved by how you feel about certain people. But there is this aspect, aspect of oneness of conviction. There must be a unity of conviction as the core doctrines of the gospel in order for a church to walk together. There can be no unity of fronel, of conviction, if the members of the church do not agree with the most important and basic doctrines of the Christian life that will guide and drive a local church. That's very important. When people start visiting us, talk about membership, we always tell them, we always tell them, go to the statement of faith. Go to the confession there, what we believe. Why? So you know what this church holds as the, the foundation of our conviction to unite us. It's impossible to maintain communion where there is confusion. And I have seen, I have seen people starting churches and they say, all right, we are leaving, we are leaving all the tradition of historical confessions of faith and statement of faith. But then you have a group of, a group of people and, and there it is, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, an Anglican, and they're all going to start their church together. What do you have? Confusion. How are you going to structure the church? Baptists believe one thing. Presbyterians believe one thing. Anglicans believe another thing. How are you going to baptize? Who are you going to baptize? So a good and clear confession of faith leaves nobody in any doubt about what the church is and what the church teaches, bringing unity of conviction. And even when Christians are aspiring to membership here, they might not agree with everything. They might not understand all the doctrines. And that's completely fine. As long as they know what this church believes and you will be submissive, you will be respectful to what the church believes. I remember when I was pastor in Brazil, in our church, we had a wonderful man. But he was Presbyterian to the core. He was in our church. But he was always so willing to submit to the church's statement of faith. I had no problem with him preaching. I had no problem with him leading. Of course, he would not become a, an elder. But he was always so respectful because he knew what the church believed and he would never try to bring this unity because of what he believed. Carl Truman, he says, Creeds and confessions establish boundaries of belonging and by implication of exclusion. Both are necessary if the church is to have a meaningful corporate identity and unity. 
Sometimes this will sadly manifest itself in the expulsion of somebody who says he belongs. But his words and actions indicate that such is not the case. That is unfortunate, but on occasion necessary. More often, however, the unity will manifest itself in a positive way. Isn't that true? A clear, a clear statement of faith is so helpful to maintain the unity of conviction in the church. Imagine trying to keep unity in a local church when the members are disagreeing as to whether women should be pastors or not. The doctrine of the Trinity. Evolution or creationism. What does the... What do you guys believe? I don't know. So then you have in one Sunday school a person teaching evolution. And then the pastor preaching from the pulpit against evolution. Arminianism or Calvinism? Pedobaptism or credo-baptism? The church is standing on divorce and remarriage. Whether certain supernatural gifts should be manifested in the local church or not. That's why it's so important to have a clear statement of faith. So there is no disunity, disharmony, because we know what the church believes. It's very clear in the essentials. That's, that's, that's what's going to drive us. We often hear the mantra, doctrine divides. Love unites. Not according to the scriptures. Actually, doctrine unites. And you need that love to keep the unity. So, I think about our own church. We all here, we do not agree with every single point of every single conviction. And some members here, they don't agree to every single point of the statement of faith. Maybe they don't, they're not convicted of that. Or maybe they don't, have not reached the, the understanding. And that's completely fine. We have had people with different views on baptism, spiritual gifts. Sometimes you might disagree with the presence of children during the preaching. The lack of a youth group. The five points of Calvinism. But as long as they are willing to respect the church's position and be submissive and eager to maintain the unity, that's completely fine. There will be disagreements in no essentials. That's just how it is. I'm so glad that we don't agree with everything. Though sometimes... You think, oh, how wonderful that would be if they all thought just like me. If everybody had just, you know, the capacity of thinking just like me. But then you think how boring that would be. <laughs> how horrible that would be. So there will be disagree disagreements. Sometimes you guys disagree in an interpretation of my of a text that I have here. And as long as it's not affecting the gospel of Christ, that's fine. And you don't need to come to me every single time you disagree with something that I say. Please, you don't need to. I don't need to know every single Sunday the things that you disagree with me. That's fine. We are going to disagree. Sometimes people do a beeline. I just finished preaching about the glories of Christ, the glories of the cross. To say, hey, but you said this, and I don't agree with that. That's fine. That's fine. But there must be a total inward attitude, mind disposition, that strives after that one thing that's greater than mine, yours, the overmastering loyalty to what holds us together. That's what there must be. Think about even in, 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 in family. Think about marriage, family life. It's crucial to have a unity of conviction. You get a, f a husband and a wife that they have no unit of conviction. And then you have chaos in the home. Then you have kids going to mom. They just go to mom. 
Or they just quote you dead. Why? Because there is no unit of conviction when it comes to disciplining the children, spanking the children, education. How about number of children? There is no unit of conviction. Then you have couples arguing and destroying the unity. So what we see in the church, we see also in marriage. And Paul knows, as you think about Paul's request for them to have the same mind, Paul knows that in the church in Philippi, they have a bunch of different people. Just read Acts 16. You have Lydia, probably the demon-possessed slave girl who became a Christian. You have the jailer, and you add a bunch of other people. So Paul knows that you have people with different backgrounds, different ways of thinking. So whatever we make of this call to be united in conviction, we must remember that Paul knows that the Roman jailer does not think just like Lydia when it comes to certain things. But they are all together in the gospel. There is a one mind, there is this one conviction as to the core doctrines of the gospel that will guide them together. And I praise the Lord because I see this in our church. This is what we see right here. Uh, despite the differences of one, one thinks about gun control, taxes, sports. Some people here love sports. Some people here hate sports. Politics, the litur liturgical shape of the service, the style of the songs we sing, Bible translations, the different instruments we use during the music. The style of preaching, the length of preaching, the frequency of, of the Lord's Supper. We, we, we have disagreements with these things. And that's fine. But yet there is a unity in this church of conviction of what truly matters. What holds us together. What drives this church. Amen. And then Paul says, not only unity of conviction, but unity of affection. Unity of affection. The unity of conviction must, must be chained and grounded in love. And that's how he structures. That's beautiful how he structures. He puts the mind and then he puts the affection. Conviction, affection. That's how he does they are inseparable. Between the two thinking-oriented expressions in Philippians 2, Paul inserts two terms that focus on believers' attachment and affection. Conviction and affection cannot be separated. There can be no true unity with only conviction or only affection. If we are all united just by affection, that will become a very superficial sentimentality. It's going to become what you feel one day. So if you have a unity that's just grounded in affection, you actually have a very superficial sentimentality. But if you have only unity of conviction, then you have harshness, lack of love, lack of grace, because there is no affection. So Paul tells us you've got to have both. There can be no true unity in the church apart from having affection and conviction. Let me tell you, there can be a massive agreement on theological points. There can be uniformity of thought when it comes to major doctrinal issues. We might be all united here when it comes to the doctrine of creation, theology, eschatology, soteriology, Christology, anthropology. We might be all united in our agreements of these doctrines. But if there is not a cruciform love embracing us, that will not work. That will not work for unity. So Paul says, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in one spirit. The same here is important because it stresses mutuality. Same love, Paul. What are you talking about? Same love? Yes, the same love of Christ. The love of Christ? Yes. There must be a unity where people are showing the love of Christ to one another. What type of love is that? Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Ephesians 5, 2, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the same love that must be in the church. The same self-sacrificial love that's in Christ Jesus. That's what must be in the church. The same love that's Christ for me, that the same love that Christ has for me, how is the love of Christ for your life? I'll tell you. Jesus' love for his people is a love that's patient, kind, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth, a love that bears all things, always ready to forgive. Amen? Isn't that the love of Christ towards us? Isn't he always ready to forgive? Isn't he always ready to bear us? And Paul says, all right, the same love now must be manifest in the church. But not only that, the same love means the same love for all the members. All. Remember Paul keeps using the word all, all, all of you. There must be the same love for all the members. The members of the church ought to love each other equally not giving prefer preferential treatment to some over others. My love for Sam must be the same as my love for Daniel. The same love. How can I be ready to be patient, forgiving towards David? But when it comes to Hannah Ortman, no, I'm not ready. Not with her. Do you see? The same love, the same love that I have for one, I must have for another. My home cannot be open just for a few members of this church, the ones that I like. The ones whose kids are well behaved. I cannot bring the bajos to my house. All those kids running around. No, thank you. I have no love for them. But I really like having Nestor and Ruth. They're so polite. And you get along so well. How unlike Christ's love is for you to be resentful, hope the worst from one member, and then at the same time be patient and ready to hope the best from another member. Do that in your home and see the chaos that you create with your kids. Right? Paul says, very similar in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I, one in chains for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the chains of peace. Paul knows that the best of the brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters at best. Paul knows that. There are times that all our doctrinal agreement, all our unity of conviction will not prevent us from hurting one another. 
All my agreement in the five points of Calvinism, all my agreement in the doctrine of creation will not prevent me from hurting Sarah. And then what happens? If our unity is just based on that conviction, then you don't have a love that bears all things, that forgives all things. There are times when a precious brother or sister will not be sensitive to your pain. They will say things that will hurt you. And there will be times when you will do that to others. It's easy to just look at people hurting you. How about how many times you have hurt people? Or you are so good and so perfect that you never hurt anyone. So delicate. And it's love that will hold us together. So when Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same conviction, having the same love. He's not talking about a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. He's talking about actions. Read 1 Corinthians 13. What love is? Love is patient. Literally suffers long. I must be willing and ready to suffer long with a brother and sister in Christ. That means that he will, they will cause you to suffer. And you will cause others to suffer. Your long suffering is to be the same as Christ towards your life. Ooh. How many times have you brought pain to Christ's heart? And he was long suffering. And now you need to do the same towards other people. Here's the thing. When you live with other people, when you dwell, to use the word of Psalm 133, when you dwell with brothers and sisters, you start seeing people's flaws, right? As soon as you start living and spending time with someone, you start noticing some flaws, weakness, sins. And in likewise manner, people start seeing your flaws, your sins. Intentionally and unintentionally, people in the church will hurt you. Beloved brothers in Christ will hurt you. They will disappoint you. A fellow church member might say something nasty about you or to you. They might break a promise that they made. A dear sister in Christ might break her confidence, destroy her confidence by sharing with another sister something that you told her in, in the privacy of your heart. And if there is no love that bears all things, that hopes the best, there is no way to keep unity. If we don't have these strong chains of love, chaining our unit of conviction, agreements on doctrinal issues will not cause you to bear one another's burden. There must be a conviction, a unity of affection together. If we don't have the same love that's in Christ Jesus, that's forgiving, a love that keeps no record of wrongs, do you know what happens? Your heart starts to accumulate bitterness, anger, disappointment. And do you know what that does? The chains of love starts to destroy that chain. That's what it does. Peter says, 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins a multitude of sins sins of insensitivity sins of being rude sins of speaking in a way that you should not speak to a brother or sister in Christ sin of lacking the proper response to a brother or sister 
There will be times that you come to church and you had a horrible week, you had a tough week. And somebody might say something that was not delicate, was not kind to you. And no matter how much doctrinal agreement you have, if you don't have love, you know what's going to happen. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It's love, this love, that causes in our hearts, our hearts to become a a manufacturer of Christ-like blankets. So we can just throw and cover a multitude of sins. Right? That's not to say that true love does not confront sin. By no means. True love confronts sins. It's crucial to maintain unity in the church. True love does not deny the existence of sin. Where there is sin. Having the same love also means that we confront and discipline sin. That's what the Lord does. But biblical love reproves, disciplines, corrects, rebukes, and confronts always with the purpose and the readiness to see restoration, reconciliation. The truth is, because of remaining sin in our lives, we are so quick, we are so quick, in light of any offense, instead of throwing a blanket... We get a magnifying glasses and you expand that. We make gigantic. Remember that you have been insensitive, callous, uncharitable. Remember that you have sinned against others. And how much we need Christ-like blankets to cover a multitude of sins. That is still remaining in our hearts. So Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. The type of love that Paul says believes all things. Hopes the best. Somebody said something to you that didn't come across in the way you're expecting. Or he might have rubbed you the wrong way. And maybe you have six, ten options as you analyze why that person did that. Always go to the one that hopes the best. Always go to the one that hopes the best unless you have proof. Unless you have a proof that that was done to hurt you and sin against you. Paul says that love does not keep a record of wrongs. The word that he used there is to keep a mental record of events for the sake of some future action. So many people, they have notebooks in their hearts where they keep taking note of every single offense. Love does not count the wrongdoings. It's like they love to just to oh, score one more point. How many people? They have these notebooks in their hearts. So many times they're, they're leaving the church. And then they have uh, pages of complaints and hurts. How could you have that for so many years and keep in fellowship with someone? How can you have all these hearts and keep in fellowship? Love keeps no record of wrongdoing. If church unity is built only on the doctrinal conviction, you will love your church as long as they don't fail or disappoint you. 
As soon as they do, you will hold a grudge, complain, causing more dissension. And do you know what you do? You simply leave the church. So many people, especially in the Reformed circle, keep jumping from church to church. All these convictions about the doctrines of the Reformed theology. But have no love, no affection. And Paul says, there's more. He says, one soul. The NIV, the NASB has being of one spirit. I like that. Sumpsuhos literally means united in spirit. The ESV has in full accord. And it's because the word accord comes from the Latin heart. The idea is one heart. And yesterday, as I was working through this, it came to my mind a Phil song, a Phil calling song. Two hearts, two hearts living just one mind, beating together until the end of time. Right? That's a beautiful song. It's about the union of a, a husband and a wife. And it's fascinating because this language here of one soul was actually found, people found it in the grave of a couple in, in ancient Greece. And it was saying as this couple, they had one soul. And that's the picture we have of the church. Remember in Acts 5 and when Luke says, and people did not dare to join the church, to join the church. To cleave into the church. Marital language. Union. A deep union. Dennis Johnson says, Our English expression, soulmate, captures this wonderful word well. It is as if Paul is saying, it's not enough to agree with each other theologically. God, God actually calls you to care for each other deeply. In love that binds your souls together so strongly that differences of perspective cannot pull you apart. This is strong bond of affection, grounded in the truth of the gospel, stabilizes believers' relationships with each other so that they cannot address their differences, whether doctrinal or interpersonal, in patience, humility, and love. It's easy. It's easy to be united externally. You see, you can look at this church and say, oh, you're all united, right? You're all sitting close to each other. We're not in the same building, but we're in the same field. <laughs> but the question is, is, is there the invisible cord, the invisible chain of affection tightening our hearts our minds together. That's the key. We might all have the same Bibles, the same wonderful books that we study, but is there a chain of love tightening our souls together? Remember how I began this sermon. If someone asked you, what does a united church look like? What does a church that is eager to maintain the unity that Christ gave to them look like? And that was really cute last night. Every Saturday night I go through the text with the family. And I would encourage you to do that with your family. Saturday night, walk through the text I'll be preaching. You know where I am. You know what I'll be preaching. So I was going through this passage with the kids talking about one mind, one love. And I asked the kids, what does a united church look like? And they were so cute. They all said, our church. <laughs> our church. And I would say, what does a church that strives to maintain the unity look like? Just look around. Just look around.
You look at us and you see a diversity of ethnical, cultural, social background. People with PhDs and people who have no clue what PhDs are. They never finished high school. Some people love sports, others love knitting. Some love reading, physics, biology. Others cannot handle that. You have all this diversity here. And yet, there is this unity of conviction. We know what we are fighting for together. What we believe about the gospel. But above all, there is a unity of affection, of love, so deep in this church. And it's so beautiful in the, in the eyes of the Lord. How good it is. How pleasing it is in my eyes to see brothers dwelling in unity. And it's so powerful that some people look at this church and they say, Oh, that's, there's some, something like a cult here. Because it's so strange to the world. And at the same time, some people come and see, that's so beautiful. I had never seen such unity before. So may the Lord Jesus preserve us in His grace. Let us pray for the unity of this church. Let us strive to maintain the gospel given unity in the chains of peace and love. Amen. Let us never think that we are better than others. Because if it churches under the Apostle Paul had problems with unity, who do we think we are to see us above them? We have been singing lately towards as our last song, the benediction song. And I think it's a... Uh, it's, we are not doing that just because it's a nice song. But it's because it's our prayer. It's our prayer, this song. May the peace of God, our Heavenly Father, and the grace of Christ, the risen Son, and the fellowship of God, the Spirit, keep our hearts and minds within His love. May this peace, this shalom that surpasses understanding, and this grace which make us what we are, and this fellowship of his communion make us one in spirit and heart. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace so far. But we know, we know of the evils in our own hearts. We know that we need your grace more and more. We need you to be constant watching, praying striving so we thank you but we ask you keep guarding us keep guiding us deliver us from the evil from the evil one and from the evil within us thank you for needing us together Thank for the chain that you have given us. Chain of conviction and affection. Keep these chains strong, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.